From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, today I was really excited to have Leah Greenberg on the show. She's the co-founder of Indivisible. It's one of the sort of most interesting new groups that sprung up in the Trump years, trying to help liberals organize, engage with politics with their communities in a more direct way. It's a really fascinating conversation. If you, you know, if you care enough about politics to listen to this podcast, you probably also care enough to engage in some of the stuff she's talking about. Hello, welcome to another episode of Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Leah Greenberg, is co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible. It's one of these, uh, it's, a, it's a big group um, that sort of sprung up in the wake of the 2016 election. Uh, she's got a new book out um, with some some big ideas about American democracy. But I think a great place to start is just like, what is Indivisible? Where did it come from? Why did you start it? Well, Indivisible got started pretty shortly after the 2016 election. Um, a little background on me. I'm a former congressional staffer. I, I and my husband, Ezra Levin, had worked uh, in the early Obama years on the Capitol Hill for members of Congress um, who were both progressives, both experiencing kind of the full brunt of the Tea Party insurgency at the time and had picked up kind of a lot of lessons during that period about what the Tea Party was, how it operated, and how it had a really powerful impact, even in a moment when they were very much out of power and trying to stop a popular president implementing a popular agenda. For a long time, we had kind of left those lessons aside and gone on and lived our lives. But immediately after the 2016 election, when we were going through the stages of grief, uh, we were noticing that there were just a ton of people all over the country who had started to get politically engaged and active and were looking for ways to make their voices heard. And we actually had this brainwave or light bulb moment when we were home over Thanksgiving in Austin, Texas, meeting up with an old friend from college. She was managing a Facebook group called Dumbledore's Army for uh, the people who've read Harry Potter or the parents who've read Harry Potter in the audience. Um, and they were, it was 3,000 people. They were dedicated to 
resisting Donald Trump and they were not sure what to do. And what she said was people were kind of like bashing their heads against a wall because they had been, you know, calling the electors and they had been sending postcards to Paul Ryan and they didn't really understand how any of their activism laddered up to anything. And we had this guide in our minds, or we had this model in our minds, which was the Tea Party. We knew that there were actually very effective ways to organize locally, to deploy that activism, to change the way that Congress thought, because we'd seen it used against us. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of looked at each other and we were like, maybe we should just write a guide to replicating the Tea Party. And that's what we did over two weeks. We totally dropped out of like all of the normal Thanksgiving celebrations and just started writing this guide to replicating the Tea Party send it around to some friends, put it online two weeks later, and it promptly went viral. So this is a monument to people will go so far to avoid interacting with extended family. Just come up <laughs> with was, anything. It was a shame because Ezra's family is really lovely. But, and they were, you know, they were like, hey, do you think you should close your laptops? It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, uh, no, it was a, it, uh, an important time mm-hmm. in American life, obviously. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and so we, we put it online. And then, you know, within a day or so, we were getting swamped by email from all over the country. There were people who were reading the guide, but more importantly, actually forming local groups to put the guide into action. Mm -hmm. And they were calling their groups Indivisible, which was the title of the guide. And suddenly we realized that we had catapulted ourselves into the middle of this organic social movement that was happening in the wake of Trump's election. And that was, I mean, that was the advice of the guide, right? I yes. mean, obviously there's more to it, but I mean, the 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 call was to form locally based Absolutely. Uh, groups. And so people started doing that. But they were also doing it already. Um, one of the most common stories that we hear from people is that before they found their indivisible group, they had gotten together with friends or coworkers or family um, just in the week or so after the election in somebody's basement or you know living room or something. And they'd said, we don't know what to do, but we got to do something. Mm-hmm. And so the guide was sort of a model for taking that informal gathering and turning it into a political action group. Sure. If we have a group of people, we've decided we want to do something mm-hmm. and this had to do. suggestions yes. of what to do. So can we let's let's talk about the tea party a little bit cuz I feel like it wasn't that long ago but oh. in some ways people can people can forget, right? So this was what, what were you doing in the 2008 election cycle? So in 2008, I was actually working on human trafficking policy and advocacy. But mm-hmm. then I went to Capitol Hill and worked eventually for uh, Tom Perriello, who was a Democratic member representing a very red district in Virginia. But, been n- but newly elected. Newly elected. He got elected in 2008 with 500 votes. Uh, to spare. And, you know, we obviously knew that he was heading into kind of grim circumstances in 2010, but he was really determined to to try his best anyways. And in, in 2008, I mean, in 2006, Democrats had won Congress by a fairly large margin. And then in 2008, they picked up additional seats in the House, additional seats in the Senate, and Obama won the election by the not like the largest margin in American history, but the largest margin that we'd had in, in quite some time. It was a big popular vote victory. He won the states he needed to win, but he also won Indiana. He won North Carolina. And just for people to remember, like an important difference from 2016 is that John McCain was popular. Mm-hmm. You know, on election day, a majority of the public said that they they liked John McCain. They thought he was a good guy. And then Obama was even more popular Mm -hmm. than that. It wasn't like a race to the bottom. And I think a lot of people, but people working in the administration as well as people who voted for him on the grassroots were like, now now the floodgates are going to open. Like things are going to happen. Democrats are going to have a a mandate 
for change and there will be bipartisan bill not not the like necessarily like the socialist revolution but like there's going to be deference to this newly elected popular president and instead we got we got the tea party and Mitch McConnell yeah right. absolutely i mean what was the impact of that on on congress and like like what what were you seeing so what we saw was the Tea Party had this very powerful psychological effect, right? When you have people who are in your district who are watching your every move, who might turn up at your office any day, who might turn any event that you're doing into a clusterfuck, um, you are constantly sort of thinking about and managing from a defensive mindset. And that's true no matter how progressive you are, right? Mm-hmm. I worked for a member of Congress who was affirmatively progressive. He voted for the Affordable Care Act. He voted for the stimulus. He voted for a cap and trade and who was really dedicated to, you know, meeting his constituents where they were and talking to them and trying to convince them and all of that. And we still had to devote an enormous amount of time to just the reality that we had this insurgency in our own district that was working against him every day. Because what you would like to think is, okay, I'm progressive, but I've got this red district, so I'm going to work really hard. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold all these meetings with people. I'm going to convince them. But instead, what happens is when you hold meetings, people show up. And then they yell at you. Yes. Organized people, right? Not not people with slightly conservative instincts who want to hear what you have to say, mm-hmm. but an organized group who's come with a message that they're delivering. Yeah, absolutely. And the Tea Party really effectively used their, you know, the the fact that they had a dedicated number of people, of organized people, to actually really change the local narratives, right? Mm-hmm. There were constant media stories. There were constant letters to the editor. It was, we were under scrutiny all the time over the smallest things. You know, they would tape record calls that they had with staff and put them on the internet and be like, they're changing their position on healthcare, et cetera. Mm. And, you know, it was just a very, even if it didn't change your positions, which it didn't for our office, but it did for some, it was a major strain on the work. And I think that that had a real impact for Democrats overall as a body in terms of what they believed was politically possible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it obviously also had an impact on Republicans, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Who yes. went from being potentially nervous right. about Democratic wins to feeling, uh, if anything, the opposite. Absolutely, right. You had very tiny flickers of potential for bipartisan cooperation at the very beginning, and those were just gone within a couple of months, right? Um, there was the Tea Party was rising up in April of 2009. By the fall, you know, it was very clear, or at least it should have been very clear to everyone, that there would be no Republican cooperation on the Affordable Care Act and really no Republican cooperation on pretty much anything going forward. Right, and it it started to sort of slow the process of anything getting done. Um, And, you know, it it was interesting. I I was working at that time at um, at Think Progress, which was part of Center for American Progress, and— You know, I feel like there was a lot of impetus at that time to sort of try to make the case that this was, like, fake, Mm -hmm. right? That was, like, what what progressives were sort of trying to say to the world. Um, And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's not 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 fake in the sense that, like, nothing that happens in life is ever 100% grassroots. Mm -hmm. Right. But, like, people were really— They were real. They were real people. They were really angry. Money can't buy the kind of anger that was on display when you had a local Tea Party group organizing and following you around. Um, Now, money absolutely could help to sustain and elevate the messages and and help to sort of 
create a connective tissue that ultimately linked these groups with a bunch of very, you know, very fancy people in D.C. funded by the Koch brothers who were able to start to pull that agenda in their direction. But the actual organic movement was, you know, it was people who got together via meetup often because they were upset about uh, the mortgage crisis. They were upset about a black president. They were upset about this general sense that their country was slipping away from them. A lot of times they were reading groups before they were political action groups. And that's the power of local sort of organizations is that, like, money and, like, smart professionals, they can help with all kinds of things in life. But they can't make human beings show up in person at your small event. It has a real impact on on members, right? And, yeah. like, that, that was your message. Well, and, you know, one of the most damaging things that you can do as somebody who's getting targeted by local folks is kind of to insist that they're astroturf or to insist that they're fake protesters. Because, one, you're not noticing the danger signs. And, two, uh, there's really nothing that makes people matter than you telling them that their real concerns are fake. Mm-hmm. Right, had, and, <laughs> and other people know them. Right, right? exactly. I mean, they, they live there. So, so like, what, what did the guide say? So the guide was based around a couple of principles. Um, one was organize locally, get together a group of like-minded people, root yourself in your community in a meaningful way. Um, The throwaway line that ultimately changed the entire way that the next several years shaped up was that we had one line that said, we recommend naming your group indivisible, um, you know, the name of your town. We won't be heard if you don't take the indivisible word, but, you know, it's just to say where you're based. And then people did it, and then suddenly there were thousands of indivisible groups. Uh Um, But then, so organize locally, focus on your own elected officials. So, you know, we all are very mad at Mitch McConnell. Unless you live in Kentucky, he does not care what you think. Your elected officials care. They care because you have power to affect their local image. You have power to, you know, persuade voters to go for them or against them. You have access to all of these different resources by virtue of being a constituent. Your leverage is them. Mm-hmm. And then just never give an inch. One of the core things that we said for the first couple of years was, you know, people are going to say we need to have an alternate agenda. People are going to say we need to have, you know, the way to fix the Affordable Care Act in order to protest Trump care. Mm-hmm. We don't need to have the way to fix the Affordable Care Act in order to protest Trump care. We actually just need to show up and say that people will die if Trump care passes. Right. Um, it's totally defensible in a moment when you're in the opposition to be focused on being in the opposition. And, you know, by virtue of doing that, you know, hold together the coalition you need to hold together maximally in order to stop the worst things that they're going to do. Right. And so these sort of early days, right, I mean, this was the more or less first legislative agenda item that they put out was Affordable Care Act repeal. And um, it, it wound up not not going that well for Republicans. It did not. And, you know, that was a major shift in what people expected, right? I think the debate at the beginning of 2017 was, will it be repealed in January or February? Mm-hmm. And, you know, within a couple of months, it became clear that it was a genuine question whether they'd ever get there. And I think the popular surge of outrage was an enormous factor in that. A really interesting, you know, thing that, that started to, to happen is that you could see— Members of Congress started not wanting to do public Mm -hmm. events, right? And that's like a way you impose a cost is that that's like an advantage Mm -hmm. incumbents have normally is you get to stage things that people show up to and you look good because it shows you – like you get to there. craft your own image, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then you're out there, right? And it's like a story. Like Representative So-and-so showed up and he answered people's questions about some things. Mm-hmm. And when you stop doing that, that sort of gives away some of your power. Yeah. 
yeah, you lose control of the narrative locally, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and one of the things that we saw was a lot of Republican members in particular, they tried to just hide and lie low and wait it out for the first, you know, six to nine months of the Trump administration. They were not going to public events. They were turning down any kinds of invitations to open events. Um, we started to do all kinds of fun things to raise the costs of doing that locally. Um, we had a lot of indivisible groups who would do things like missing member town halls where they would host a town hall and they would invite the member of Congress. And if they didn't come, then they would have a chicken on stage instead or something like that. And, you know, that would get covered in local media and sort of help help to reinforce the narrative of that person as unresponsive. The other thing, though, is that that is, you know, that is something you can do as an incumbent. It is not something you can do when you are trying to run for Mm re-election. You actually have to be accessible. You have to show up places. You have to ask people for votes. And so we had a lot of people who kind of looked at the looked at the overall climate and, you know, went straight from hiding to retirement. Right. I mean, that's been definitely a big sort of thing of the the Trump years is Mm -hmm. that a lot of people have sort of quit. Let's take a break and then want to talk about the sort of building of a more formal organization. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Okay, so you had this guide, and people were naming their groups Indivisible XYZ. Um, So now what is, like, Indivisible that you executive direct? Well, let me start in early 2017 Mm -hmm. when the guide had started to go viral, and we were getting emails from all over the country and had no idea what to do. So we basically pulled together everyone we knew in our lives, our professional lives and our friendships, and brought them to our house, and we were like, okay, we've got – we are – 
we're going to do this thing. Um, we built a website. We started registering groups. We started connecting local groups to media. Um, we started to get lawyers involved in order to make sure that people were getting legal advice if they needed it. We started to produce policy resources that were connecting the policy guidance of partner organizations that we were working with, with, um, you know, people who wanted to know what action they could take in response to all these terrible things that were happening but from the Trump administration. We basically started building out the functions of a nonprofit dedicated to supporting and serving as a platform and serving as kind of a steward leader for this decentralized movement that was mm -hmm. fundamentally about local leadership all over the country. And, you know, over the course of the next couple of months, uh, had a heroic feat of volunteership in doing that and concluded that we needed to quit our jobs. We needed to bring some people on board full time. We needed to actually build out a nonprofit that was ultimately really dedicated to these things. And so that's what became Indivisible. Mm -hmm. We started raising money online, um, started to, to bring some people on board, started to, you know, build out a real organizing team that could actually be responsive to folks around the country and have been kind of organizing with and in partnership with the movement over the last three years. And so the idea of that is uh, some of that is like like the boring aspects of yes. having groups, right? There's like there's legal issues and finances and some of that is is policy Right. Yeah, we talk about service providership and steward leadership. So service providership is just recognizing that there are all kinds of hurdles that you face when you've brought together a community of people who don't want to become a nonprofit but do want to be politically active in your community. It's mm -hmm. everything from how do you raise the money to, um, you know, get a stage for your next event mm -hmm. to, you know, where how do you find meeting space to is there somebody who can be available to train you on media outreach, all of these things that people are looking for that are not necessarily just easily available. Mm -hmm. um, so we tried to really dig into, like, what were the services that we could provide that would reduce the friction costs and just support a real ecosystem of local activism for people who were not planning to quit their jobs and make this their full-time right. life. And then service or steward leadership, which was really the idea that we were going to be this national decentralized movement, and also there were powerful ways that we could make our voice heard together, right? We could show up in national days of action and do things that would sort of show the full strength of the movement at scale. We could coordinate with other organizations and sort of build out strategies that allowed us to, while still being decentralized, show up in partnership with the broader progressive movement on key campaigns and issues. And so now, do you have like formal members. I mean, something I, I remember in, in college, you know, I, I took class, something, I, I forget who, who uh, what it was called, but it was the Theater Scotch Ball was, was the professor. And, and one of the things she, she talked about, I mean, this is in her books and things too, if you want to do, do real, real information about the world, but is that like America used to have a lot of national membership organizations with federated structures, right? So like local chapters, you'd be a member of the local chapter, but then the chapters were members of a national organization and they could could do things in a different way from a lot of modern groups that, you know, you sort of hear about, but they like are a little office in Washington mm -hmm. and an email list, right? Um, and Indivisible seems a little bit like a, a sort of return to that that older model. In a lot of ways, I think that's that's right. And we've definitely, you know, thought a lot about the parallels with the civic associations of old and and what what is, you know, what are we tapping into when we say come together in a community and take action, take the action that's most relevant to you, but also build a social community, right? Because, you know, there was an era where for significant swaths of American society, you had a social and civic engagement community that was yours that, you know, where you would get trained, you'd get skills, you'd regularly be engaged with the political system. Um, the those have largely died out over the last 50 years or, you know, they're still around, but they're not remotely the force that they were in civic right. life. Um, 
and you we know, have much better TV now. We have much better TV now, right? Like, <laughs> we have we have many ways in which um, most adults' lives have become more atomized and less socially connected. And you know, this is one of the ways in which we try to restitch some of that social fabric, both for both because that's good, but also mm-hmm. because that keeps people more likely to stay engaged, right? Um, right? You know, a lot of times, if you ask people to sign a petition or to make a call, you know, that's great, and like maybe they get in the habit of it. Maybe it becomes you know, it's like brushing my teeth. Like every day, I brush my teeth and I call my member of Congress. But what's much more likely to keep people engaged long term is if they have a real community, they have actual relationships, they're consistently showing up because they are engaged and they feel empowered by the work they're doing. Right. And you – I mean people feel obligations mm-hmm. to like other specific people who they they know, right? So it's like you come to the meeting because you've been – to the ones in the past. People expect to see you there. Exactly. And one of the things, um, uh, Theda Scotchpool has actually studied indivisible groups around the country as well. And one of the things that she finds is that really often at the core of the indivisible groups is um, a set of very strong female friendships. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, so so is it, uh, it's primarily women members? Disproportionately women. Um, our best estimate is that between 70 and 80 percent of our leaders are women. And wh- what else do you know about the sort of d- demographics? Yeah. Regionally speaking, they actually are very – they cover the entire country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are definitely indivisible groups. There's certainly a lot in California and New York, but they actually are really well represented in rural and suburban areas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've seen is that, in fact, a lot of the strongest indivisible groups are in um, quite red areas. And mm-hmm. often that's a really natural reason, which is that it's the first time anybody's brought together a progressive social community in, you know, um, Johnson City – Tennessee or in all these places where, right. you know. It's, it's, it's more special, right? I mean, it, it it can play a role in people's lives totally. beyond the, the politics if you're in a place that's 80 percent Republican. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've been talking to um, an indivisible group in a really red area and someone says, you know, I thought I was crazy and I thought I was the only one and now I've got my community. And, you know, and that's actually like those are not necessarily the places where we're going to flip a seat next year. But I think that's actually enormously important. Um, you know, the example that goes through my head is uh, there's an indivisible group in a rural area of Tennessee that had their first gay pride parade ever mm-hmm. um, put on by the indivisible group. You know, they just hadn't had they hadn't had anybody in the community who would do something like that. And that actually is the kind of thing that is important for long-term social change in flipping the narrative in these places. So what's the sort of uh, progression, right? So early on, there's a new newly inaugurated president, Congress. They're trying to repeal Affordable Care Act. Uh, you've got people making calls to offices. Uh, they're, they're showing up to member events. You're mostly focused on ACA repeal. Um, and then do you turn to focus more on the 2018 midterms? Yes, absolutely. So f- from the beginning, our mantra was kind of focus where you can have the most impact. And so for the first year, that was very much legislative campaign. So it was the Affordable Care Act. It was the campaign for DACA. It was um, the campaign to fight the tax reform bill. Um, over the course of 2018, the gravity shifted, and it was very much more about what do you need to do to support strong local candidates in your district? What do you need to do within your own continued electoral or advocacy activism that's actually also about setting up the right narratives for the election that's coming up? Because fundamentally, you know, there's this virtuous cycle, right? The mm-hmm. advocacy that you're doing in an off year is really about setting in place the narratives that are going to stick with your elected official during the election year. Mm. So you have a lot of members of Congress who, um, you know, it's not really about the ad war in October of 2018. It's about the nine months of coverage saying that they aren't showing up to public events and that they're, for the, they're against um, the Affordable Care Act, but they won't explain why. That really did them in. What, one of my favorite uh, studies was looking back at the, at the Tea Party and they looked at there was some like national
national day of Tea Party action. And, you know, so people showed up in all kinds of places. But also it rained in some places. Um, and, you know, when it's raining, you don't get good good turnout to, to your protest. And so they looked at election results in places where it had rained, you know, months before mm-hmm. the election versus places where it didn't. And they showed that, you know, the Republican candidates did markedly better in places where the weather had been good on the big national protest day, right? And that's sort of, you know, it's obviously not the rain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's what you're saying about about the um, the narrative, right? I yeah. mean, it, it creates it, only so many people show up to even the biggest protests, mm-hmm. but other people hear about them. Yeah, and fundamentally, the the thing that we see is that the idea that there's protest and the idea that there's electoral activity and that those are two separate activities that don't have much of an influence on each other are, is really just a false binary. Um, the people who are doing the protesting are then doing the door knocking. The narratives that are being set by the protesting haunt people into the general elections. These are all activities that kind of feed and reinforce each other. It's a virtuous cycle. But here's where I, I do feel like there's there's a difference sometimes. And, and this is different different groups, right? But the question is, like, who are you protesting, right? And to what end? And so, you know, indivisible protests that I saw in, in, in 2017, right? They were targeting Republicans, right? I mean, n- not necessarily exclusively, but, right, there was a, you know, it was like, don't repeal this law, right? Come talk about that. And then there's electoral activism. Whereas you also see a lot of stuff where it seems like the target of the protest is not, like, who's the worst actor here, but who's the actor who's most likely to care about me. So you see climate activists, you know, occupying Nancy Pelosi's office. When I think, like, they would agree that, like, Nancy Pelosi is not, like, the worst member of Congress on climate and energy issues. And those same folks have actually occupied Mitch McConnell's office. They just don't get nearly as much attention when they do it. Hmm. So, And I would also, I would argue that actually there were a lot of very high-impact protests relatively early on, often driven by groups in blue states that were really about establishing for Democrats that what was going to be acceptable was a posture of resistance and compromise was not going to be okay. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking particularly of there were mass protests outside of the offices of a lot of the senators who voted for Mike Pompeo to be um, CIA director, you know, and there were protests around a lot of the confirmations of kind of the most uh, the most loathsome members of the Trump cabinet very early on that really did help to kind of get Democrats' spines in shape uh-huh. and, and help to set the tone such that by the time we were heading into the Affordable Care Act, the fight, the debate was not, you know, are we going to lose some Democrats? It was basically which Republicans Just can we peel off? Okay. And so so now you're looking forward, right, and you're doing more uh, sort of prospective mm-hmm. uh, policy type work. And, and I mean, why sort of make that turn or, you know, you could have said, all right, like we we did it, right? We we had our Tea Party movement and now it's time to go home. Well, we've been doing a lot of thinking and listening with the field of groups around the country and, you know, thinking about what is the future of uh, a movement that got started in reaction to Donald Trump in 2016. And one of the things that, one of the themes that has really just been clear to us from very early on, from all the conversations we have, from the surveys we do, from the ways in which, the issues in which people choose to engage is that There's a very strong pro-democracy current that's running through the resistance to Trump movement. And that makes a ton of sense because it's about resistance to Trump, but it's also about resistance to the forces that allowed Donald Trump to arise. So 
For us, a lot of the pivot in 2019 has really been about bringing to the surface that focus on democracy, that focus on, you know, what are the causes of Donald Trump's election in 2016? What do we need to do to ensure that there's not a Donald Trump again? Because we are looking at a political system that could deliver this once. And right now, and without fundamental structural reforms, it could deliver it again. Yeah, I mean, the, the democracy point, I think it's it's really um, fundamental, you know, because the, the term, uh, the, the label populism has gotten attached to Trump and to Trump-style politics. And I, I there are reasons for that, um, you know, that, that I think make sense analytically. But also the, the normal posture of being critical of populism mm-hmm. is that you are fearing some kind of run amok majoritarianism, right? The newly installed president puts down a ballot initiative that's like, I'm going to be the dictator, and it passes with 56%, and and now Mm -hmm. all civil liberties are torn up. But Trump has never been a populist leader in that sense, right? He's never commanded majority majority support. No, no. I mean, he is a leader of a white a white grievance faction um, within the country, right? He is the leader of um, a set of people who feel like their country is slipping away from them, who feel like their power base is, you know, diminishing, and who are actively resorting to um, anti-democratic measures in order to maintain their power. So when you talk about pro-democracy, I mean, what does that what does that mean in a practical sense? So we start with this basic diagnosis, which is that Trump is a symptom of the problem. He's not the whole problem. If we had a healthy democratic society, it would have rejected Trump the way that a healthy body rejects a virus. And what that means is that we have to look at the overarching trends that allowed him to rise. And the reality is that there has been a multi-decade campaign by elites within the Republican Party to systematically rig the rules of our democracy um, using everything from voter suppression to gerrymandering to the ways in which they have subverted the court system to serve their ends uh, to attacks on labor unions and civil society and the media. All of these are part of a broader current of uh, a strategy that's fundamentally about enshrining minority rule for the long term. And That's a lot of things. Yeah, it is a lot of things. It's <laughs> been, you know, it's a very effective strategy. They're in the late stages of a game that they have been playing really well for a long time. And it's not enough to beat Trump because, you know, Trump didn't rig the election in Georgia to keep Stacey Abrams out, right? Trump did not um, change the rules in North Carolina or Wisconsin or Michigan when Republicans lost and they immediately stripped powers away from the governor, the, the rightfully elected governors. Um, so uh, let, not- let's, let's talk about what, actually what, what happened in those states because mm-hmm. it's a, it's an interesting thing. So in North Carolina um, was uh, in 2016, a Democrat was elected governor. And then in Wisconsin and uh, Michigan, Democrats were newly elected in 2018. But in both cases, uh, Republicans retained big majorities in the state legislature. Mm-hmm. And so what did they do? Um, so in each case, they started to change the powers and authorities that were allocated to the governorship. I believe in one of the cases, it was around appointments. Um, in others, it was around the ability to, to move and implement legislation um, and authority over different agencies. In each case, fundamentally, it was about you know changing the rules to restrict the authority of another elected part of the government. And I think it's part of a broader trend that we're seeing, right, around essentially people, you know, when they when they lose, they change the rules. Or when they win, they change the rules in order to stay in power. And that's not, again, that's not a Trump thing that has been happening. You know, a lot of the most creative and sinister things have been happening at the state level. It's really not a Trump thing. You know, I mean, it's like Trump, 
there, there's there's like Trump stuff, and then there's like stuff Trump's involved with. But like, I have never seen Donald Trump tweet about the state legislature of Wisconsin. Right. Right. He's but, not organized enough for that. <laughs> right. Well, he's not. Right. But I mean, I, I to me, like, that's where like the rubber hits the road on this, like, what's the problem? What's the symptom? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Like, this is clearly just not the kind of guy who is pouring over election district maps in random states, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in Wisconsin, they had a situation where Democrats won most of the votes for the state legislature, uh, but Republicans have a big majority of the seats mm-hmm. because of how the lines have drawn. But you can't gerrymander the governor's race. Uh, so the Democrats won that narrowly. But yeah, then you just continually move to take powers away from that and locate them in the gerrymandered state legislature. And that's a completely freestanding line of thought. Right. Well, and there's an entire body of political science research, right, around what happens in democracies when the norms and the forbearance break down, essentially, right? The idea that, like, okay, well, we lost this election, but, you know, we we might win the next election, Mm -hmm. so it's to our advantage to not change the rules and Mm -hmm. go on this game of, you know, Calvin Ball of People probably don't get Calvin and Hobbes references anymore, do they? <laughs> I get Calvin and Hobbes references. <laughs> okay, if you don't know, there used to be this great cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes. It's part of a broader theme, right, which is that at, at one point there was an assumption that if you lost an election, you got a chance to compete in the next election, and that was the way that things worked. And you didn't want to go and change the rules because you didn't want to create this arms race of people changing the rules. That norm, I believe they folks call it forbearance, that's been abandoned over the course of the last couple of decades. Um, Republicans have just been consistently, you know, breaking a lot of the soft norms that have allowed our democracy to function for a long time and then also increasingly taking aim at the hard rules that have allowed it to, to continue. You see this at the federal level, right, where there has just been a complete shift to scorched earth approach to stopping any legislation that moves under a Democratic administration. Um, You can start it with Gingrich. You can start it with Mitch McConnell having an affirmative strategy of trying to prevent President Obama from passing anything during his terms. But there's been this understanding that the minority party wins if they prevent anything from happening during uh, the opposition's tenure. And And there's also, you know, the political system that we have has so many checks and balances that allow you to do that. Right. Okay, let's take another break, and then we'll we'll solve all these problems. Okay, great. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. 
Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So what do people need to do? Because in some ways, you know, this is the the harder the harder thing to do is think constructively, really. It's it's challenging to like meet up with people and to organize locally and to show up, but the the system is loaded to help you say no, right? But if you want to make changes prospectively, like what what do we need to prioritize? What what do you recommend people do? Well, that's a lot of what we talk about in the book and a lot of what we're orienting around right now um, as an organization and movement, which is the need to embrace a structural democracy reform agenda that actually makes our government function better in order to deal with the very pressing policy crises that we have. The overall emphasis is that we are we are brought together by any number of issues. We care about climate change. We care about gun violence. We care about health care. And we're not going to be able to make and sustain progress on any of those things as long as we're functioning within a system that's fundamentally broken and not delivering real change. So what are those changes? Let's let's hear. This <laughs> is the weeds. We need we need, we need tedious, some policy details. We need tedious details. Oh great. Okay. Well let's start with the filibuster. The all right. most the most exciting um, of all. So fundamentally right now we have a system in which we've decided that it takes sixty votes to pass anything in the Senate. That is not a constitutional arrangement. That is the product of a weird legislative loophole created by Aaron Burr that nobody even noticed for another 30 years. It was primarily used to block civil rights legislation for a really long time, and then increasingly in the last several decades, it's been used to block basically everything. This is not what the founders intended. It is not a part of a functional system of government. And, you know, it is fundamentally, given the demographics of the Senate, it is a permanent chokehold on basically any progressive legislation. Mm -hmm. So, Anything that we care about, um, from gun violence to the democracy reforms that we're going to continue talking about, it is going to depend on getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah, this is something the presidential candidates have occasionally sort of waded into. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems to me, though, from from what I've seen from that, like, Senate Democrats are not— not super interested. Right. There's enormous institutional resistance around getting rid of it. And we respect that. We respect the concerns people have. Fundamentally, as progressives, we believe that we win when government works, when the results of an election then translate into policy outcomes. Whether or not they're the policy outcomes you want, we think that the functional system of government involves people getting elected, putting their agenda in place, and then being judged by the results. And right now, we have a system that's designed to stop that from happening. And, you know, that is a deep contributor to people's lack of faith in government. Yeah, I always do think it's like a weird, you know, because they'll say like, well, sure, we could pass some bills you'll like, but also Republicans might pass bills you don't like, Matt. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, like that that's true. But I, I always feel like it, it exhibits an odd lack of confidence in the quality of the underlying ideas, Absolutely. right? I mean, because it's actually hard to sustain political power by passing unpopular legislation or ideas that make people's lives worse. And I think the fight over the Affordable Care Act this year has actually been a great example of that, right? The Affordable Care Act is not in place today because of the filibuster. The Affordable Care Act remains the law of the land because Republicans could never get 50 votes to get rid of it because it turns out that once you've passed legislation that changes people's lives, there's enormous resistance to repealing it. Right, right. The fight to get states to expand Medicaid has been Mm -hmm. very difficult uh, because of some barriers the Supreme Court put in the way. But the change 
is always that new states are expanding, right? right? I mean, and there have been some efforts to roll back a little bit through administrative Mm -hmm. shenanigans, but nobody runs and wins on a platform of, we're going to scrap this. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so what else beyond the filibuster? What what else have you got? So we need to tackle the demographic imbalance of the Senate. Currently, the Senate is wildly tilted to disproportionately represent um, rural and disproportionately white and conservative areas of Mm -hmm. the country. There are a lot of ways that you would ideally go for that with constitutional amendments. These are not things that we are going to be able to do in 2021. And so in 2021, what we have to do is look at where do we, who needs to be enfranchised? So obviously candidates here in Washington, D.C., we have hundreds of thousands of people pay more taxes than 20 states, absolutely should have two senators representing them. Mm Puerto Rico uh, is fundamentally needs to determine its own future, but they should not have any legislative bars to doing so from Congress. They should be able to choose statehood if they want to. They should be able to function with self-determination. Okay. There are an enormous number of territories that the U.S. has that are barely acknowledged in public discourse in the U.S. at all, do not have representation or do not have voting representation in Congress. Um, that's, you know, fundamentally unjust. U.S. Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. Guam. Like, the polling on all that stuff is really good. It's This is an interesting— um, place where, like, what's sort of considered radical in a kind of D.C. conventional wisdom versus what's considered radical by public opinion Mm -hmm. are actually quite at odds. Like, people think that Americans should have the right to representation in Congress. It goes goes pretty well. Um, So, okay, so so fixing the Senate. So fixing the Senate. Uh, We have some slightly more ambitious ideas around the House of Representatives, which we include more just to get people thinking about, you know, the fundamentally ahistorical nature of fixing it as it currently is or keeping it as it currently is. So the House of Representatives historically continued to expand over time as Mm -hmm. the population expanded. It was stopped. That extension um, was halted in the 1920s in um, basically as a result of nativists who are concerned that increasing political power was going to the cities as they continued to expand the House of Representatives. There's no reason that it should be fixed at 435 people. Our districts are huge. There is no way for a member of Congress to really represent all of the people there to really genuinely be engaged with them. We should be looking at smaller districts. There is a really deep wealth of political science evidence suggesting that they can improve the quality of representation. They improve um, the diversity of leadership. They improve people's actual overall faith in government. Um, And there's no reason to not pursue that. Okay. So bigger house. Bigger house. Smaller seats. And also looking at ranked choice voting and multi-member districts. So this is one of the ways in which you start to get at some of the dynamics around political parties that have been so damaging over the course of the last several decades. Um, the increased polarization within a system that's just not set up to handle it. So rank ranked choice is um, you could have three or four or five candidates in there. You, mm-hmm. put, you put the numbers down in order and then the sort of um, – if you're if you vote for the fifth choice and they're eliminated, then your second choice go or your votes are allocated to your second choice. Right. So I guess so. So that has like two. So they do this in Maine now, right? Mm-hmm. They they just did it in, in 2018, and that's the reason why um, Jared Golden uh, only only won the Democrat uh, because he got some of the um, the reallocated votes. So right. that has like a first order impact. Is that it changes who wins? Yeah. Um, second order impact. It encourages more people to vote third party at least right. with their with their first choices and that maybe changes the Changes the political dynamics, right? Well, and it's worth thinking about Maine. Part of the reason why Maine moved to ranked choice voting was because this Trumpist figure kept winning the governorship, right? Right. He was able to win the Republican nomination, and then he was able to 
uh, win in general elections where uh, there were independent candidates. Right. Pa- Paula Page got, got elected governor twice mm-hmm. with, with less than 50 percent of the vote both times. Um, so then multi-member districts, I, I've, always, I've always loved multi-member districts. Um, so this is like you could have, instead of a, a little district and represents one person, um, you could have five or ten or I don't know how many, and then you would you would elect people based on a, a sort of a, a ranked list. Yes, and that is a form of proportional. It's a form of proportional representation, and basically what it allows is for areas. Well, let me step back. Um, you know, we often have this idea that there are blue areas and red areas and purple areas, but the reality is that even in you know a very red area, twenty percent of people are voting Democratic, and even mm-hmm. in you know Manhattan, twenty um, percent of people are voting Republican. I just made that up, but ten uh, percent <laughs> of people. Um, so the the thing about multi-member districts is that they actually allow you to get at the genuine ideological diversity and ensure representation across the different levels of diversity within the population or within a population. So right. yeah, and it means you get more um, diffuse coalitions, right? Yes. I mean, I think my it's like my my favorite. Uh, shorthand factor this, right, is like more people voted for Trump in Los Angeles County than in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But L.A. County is super blue and West Virginia is super red. But if you had those L.A. County, those minority Republicans in there, as well as Democrats from rural areas, you would have some topics where rural members mm-hmm. across parties work together to do something, some topics where people say, hey, I might be a Republican, but that doesn't mean I don't want, like, mm-hmm. the cities to have water, right? Absolutely. Because you know, pe- people need to take care of their their constituents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There, We don't know what the impact of a system that encouraged more representation of minority political constituencies and more um, more different political parties would be on our politics. Um, you know, you could conceivably have the Republican Party splitting into different factions, right? Um, you'd have a business conservatives party. You'd have a cultural conservatives party. You would have the Democrats having, you know, representation around socialists versus um, representation around moderate Moderate folks, um, we don't know exactly what would happen, but what we do know is that the current system of two polarized parties playing hardball in a system that's not equipped to handle it is not working. Right, right. So the idea is to basically you would you would dissolve the hard polarization of the current system by having more yes. institutional representatives. Yes. And now we're under no illusion that this is going to pass in 2021, but we do think people should be thinking hard about what are the possible ways in which you tackle the deep problems of polarization that mm-hmm, we are currently mm-hmm, experiencing. Mm-hmm. Now, other places where we think Democrats do really need to consider a significant structural reform agenda is the courts. So fundamentally, we have a court system that has been packed. Um, Republicans have appointed 15 of the last 19 Supreme Court justices through some combination of, you know, the accidents of fate and affirmative campaigns to uh, avoid seating Democrats and willingness to seat basically anyone on the Republican side. Mm -hmm. That is not representative of our democracy. That is not um, in any way representative of the political constituency of the country. So you're talking about Expanding. So we do not take a position on a specific reform. It could mm-hmm. be expanding. Um, it could be looking at things like rotating justices on and off from the circuits. There are a number of things that are within Congress's power to do and could be done with a simple majority vote. And fundamentally, we believe that allowing the Federalist Society to maintain a veto power over our 
uh, over the legislation that we pass in the next generation is not an option. Yeah, I mean, this is something that has really, I, I mean, I think that sort of general Supreme Court topic has occasionally wafted up. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a very strong likelihood that we are going to see a judicial veto of any kind of substantive uh, legislative change going forward. Well, and if you look at the really flimsy rationales that the conservatives on the court have used to overturn all kinds of things over the last couple of years, there's just no reason to believe that there's no reason to believe that they're subject to shame in any mm-hmm. way. So the next Democratic administration should fully expect that their legislative agenda and their administrative actions will all be subject to extremely close review and most likely being overturned by the right. Supreme Court. And so a, a real kind of focus on that. Okay, so that's uh, Senate, House— Judiciary. I assume you're not an Electoral College fan. We are not an Electoral College fan. Um, What we tried to set for ourselves as the thought exercise within the book was really what can be passed and what can change in 2021 if Democrats win the presidency and take the Senate and hold the House. Mm -hmm. So this is really about, like, what is the day one democracy agenda that's actually possible to move with those pieces? Mm -hmm. I have a long list of constitutional (laughs) amendments that I think would be really great ideas. And, you know, we're realistic about the fact that those are not on the table right. for 2021. So another thing you you talk about that is is interesting, because I think it's not um, what necessarily most people have in mind when thinking of democracy, is labor unions. Absolutely. Well, labor unions are a fundamental pillar of civil society. Um, they are a way of changing the power relations within society. It is not an accident that when Republicans successfully take power in a state, they one of the first things that they often do is go after labor unions. It is frankly, just ridiculous that Democrats have not affirmatively adopted a clear posture of defending and expanding labor unions wherever possible in order to recognize that they're they're a crucial pillar of an active, you know, people-powered society. Yeah, so this is an asymmetry I'm, I'm not sure everybody is aware of. But, mm-hmm. you know, we all know uh, fans of maps uh, that, you know, some states have trended more conservative, some states have trended more liberal. Um, famously, you know, we saw in Wisconsin, other places that had historically been quite progressive when Republicans sort of won, one of the, the top things they did was go go after labor unions. Uh, at the same time, we've seen other states, I think most notably Colorado and Virginia, have mm-hmm. drifted uh, into the into the blue column, uh, but they have not. I mean, most recently, right. Virginia state legislative elections, Democrats captured majority there. It's the first time you have a Obviously, there was a whole solid South era, but this is the first time, like, the modern Democratic Party has been Mm -hmm. in a position to govern Virginia, and right away, the governor is like, eh— Maybe we're, maybe we're not going to change the right-to-work clause. Yeah, and I think it is it is a real asymmetry, and it reflects the fact that Republicans Republicans are consistently applying a power analysis to the legislation that they're passing. When they take power, they change the rules to stay in power. When Democrats get elected, a lot of times we're trying to, we're trying to move some of the things that we ran on, but we're not really thinking about what is the fundamental ways in which the legislation that we're passing either builds people power— builds the reflectiveness and representation of our democracy or undermines it. Right. I mean, and that's just like, it's unthinkable that Republicans would sweep into power in a traditionally progressive state and leave the labor law situation untouched. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, it's frankly ridiculous that Democrats are not taking the same position. What do we know, right? I mean, there's, I I think we've seen, I've seen some some papers on when states flip and it's, it's like, has a big 
electoral impact, right? I mean, just in sort of short-term uh, election outcomes, the the strength and ability of, of labor unions to organize. Absolutely. And, you know, there's all the research around exactly what happened and how much the decimation of Wisconsin's labor unions have been, you know, has been linked to their electoral outcomes over the next few years. Um, there is... Yeah, there's a lot of research that definitely indicates that this is a closely it's closely right. related. Okay, so um, here I, I should I should let you go soon, but uh, you know before I, I wrap up these shows, I always like to ask the guests like what, what what do you wish I had asked you here? Where is the book available? Oh yes, the basic book promotion. Where is the book available? Uh, you can pick it up from your local independent bookstore on IndieBound.com or uh, for the Audible or Kindle version on Amazon. Oh, there you go. What will happen if we don't pass these reforms? Yes, what is going to happen if we don't pass these these urgent reforms? Well, what I would say is that fundamentally we've got kind of two axes in our politics right now on the Democratic side. And, you know, one axis is how left are you? And the other is, do you believe that we are in a moment of crisis and that we are, if we do not change fundamentally the rules of the game, if we do not change the institutional framework in which we are operating, it will get worse. And we believe that there is a deep constituency that brings together those two things, um, that there is a real need for legislative change that recognizes that if we don't actually structurally intervene, then we won't have the ability to address any of our other looming challenges, um, that we're in a moment when if we don't respond decisively to climate change, um, we will face massive societal unrest and enormous consequences, particularly for uh, marginalized people all over the world and for folks at home. And fundamentally, if we do not actually make these structural reforms, then we're not going to be able to cope with any of the challenges that are coming at us down the pike. Always good to close on a, on a cheery note like that. Okay, Leah Greenberg uh, from Indivisible. The book is We Are Indivisible. It is available in an independent bookstore near you, also on the internet through your normal uh, ebook vendors. Uh, so, so check it out. Um, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Thanks, as always, to uh, Malachi Brodus and Jackson Bierfeld, our engineer and producer. Uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 